Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. In today's episode, Whatever It Takes to Save My Daughter, we'll be speaking with Lisa Wachneen Murphy. She is the founder and CEO of Silver Sands Recovery in Prescott, Arizona. Lisa, who was born and raised in New York City, had a thriving career in the fashion industry when she discovered one of her daughters was struggling with a severe drug addiction. Lisa committed to do whatever it took to rescue her daughter from the grips of addiction. This culminated in convincing her daughter to get help and flying her across the country to a rehabilitation center in Arizona. Thankfully, Lisa's daughter is now in recovery as a result of the help she received there. Lisa was so grateful that her daughter's life had been saved that she felt led to pay it forward. After a time, she left her career in the fashion industry and the New York area to found Silver Sands Recovery. Lisa is here today to tell her story. So Lisa, I'd like to welcome you to our show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I want to start by asking you, Lisa, where were you born and raised? And can you tell us about your family roots? Sure. Um, Well, I was born and raised in Brooklyn in a place called Trump Village. It's about a block from the beach on Ocean Parkway. It's right nestled in between Coney Island and Brighton Beach. And it was mainly Jewish and from Jewish descent. My parents are uh, Hungarian. But there were a couple of generations in, uh, from American, so just always felt like I was American. But it was a very Jewish neighborhood, for sure. Do you remember as far as family get-togethers or meals, were they very just New York American, or did they have a Hungarian flair to them? Probably a little of both. Every weekend, we'd go to our grandparents' house where my father brother, my uncle and his wife and kid would go and we'd have a Friday night dinner there. It wasn't religious or anything, but it was super nice. It was all traditional kind of Hungarian food, like stuffed cabbage and Hungarian goulash and matzo ball soup. And it was, it was what I grew up with. It was great. I love matzo ball soup, by the way. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's my absolute favorite. What are some of your favorite childhood memories? So being from Brooklyn and a block away from the beach, I would definitely say it was the beach and the food, the beach and the food for sure. And just living in Trump Village was incredible because if now picture this, you have seven high rise apartment buildings. Each apartment building is 23 stories high. Each story has about 20 apartments on them. And almost every apartment is filled with a family. So if you could imagine how many kids there were to play with, and there was always some sort of adventure going on. And back then we played in a playground and when the ice cream truck would come, I'd scream up to, we lived on the 21st floor, mom, the ice cream truck is here, mom. And she'd be, all right, one second. And she'd go inside and then come out hanging out of the window with a baggie full of change and throw it down 21 stories. <laughs> Fortunately, if anybody ever got hit in the head with that, they'd be in trouble. Right. I know. She's like, watch out, everybody. <laughs> so uh, those are some fun memories. Just thinking back to everything was always an adventure. There's always tons of kids to hang out with. And 
some sort of adventure, Brighton Beach Baths. I don't know if you've ever heard of Brighton Beach Baths, but we would walk probably about 12 years old. My friend and I would walk down Brighton Beach, go to Brighton Beach Baths, which was a beach clubhouse. I mean, it was pretty amazing. Of course, we didn't have passes, so they had turnstile doors. And we were also little and skinny. We would be able to slip through the turnstile and sneak in for the day. <laughs> or we would go to Coney Island and beg the guys at the rides, please, can you let us on for free, please? You know, to go on the cyclone roller coaster. So we were always trying to, you know, we never had any money. We'd, we'd go to get a slice of pizza and share it between five of us or something. I mean, we we're just little kids and it was fun. It was innocent and fun and okay the best memories I have growing up there. Oh, that's wonderful. What about school? Did you enjoy going to school? No, I hated school. I could tell you school, I just always found to be scary place. I didn't like it at all. I was pretty smart. I naturally did well in everything, but I never liked school. I skipped a grade in middle school we all cheated off of our friend Cheryl, you know, <laughs> so. <laughs> the truth comes out. Yeah. Cheryl was really smart. We all skipped a grade, the whole gang of us. And then uh, high school was very difficult for me. I had no financial support. My father had left my mother at the time. So while I was in high school, I was also working full time and it was very, very difficult. I didn't really have much of a childhood from the age of 14 up. I, I had to become an adult pretty quickly. So I never like I wanted to go to school. I wanted to become an attorney one day, but I just I had to work. That was it. Were you able to finish high school? I finished. High, in fact, I finished high school. I graduated early, skipped a grade and I'd graduate a little early on top of that. Yeah, I graduated. I just didn't like it at all. So what happened after that? What happened after high school? Well, while I was in high school, I worked at a place called Crazy Eddie. I don't know if you've ever heard of oh, Crazy, Crazy Eddie. Eddie. Prices are insane. So I started at Crazy Eddie's and I worked there. I was about 14 years old and I got there just when they were launching their video rental department, which had VHS tapes. So I kind of started it there with them and I was making some really good money. I have to say, I was really a hustler and I turned out to be like one of their best salespeople there in general. And I made a lot of money working there. And that was all while I went to school. So by the time I was, I graduated school, I, I did get into NYU, but I did not pursue it. And I wound up uh, pounding the pavement in, in New York City, I wanted to make money. And I knew that that was the place to go. And I got a job in the fashion industry right out of the gate. Oh, what kind of a place did you work at? So my first job was in a buying office. And I was hardly making any money. And I hardly had any clothes. But they were great. I uh, They gave me all these samples. I worked in the junior buying department and they gave me tons of clothes and I met tons of people. Doing that led me to my first job in sales. I knew if you wanted to make money, you went into sales, not buying at the time. So I got a job in sales and it just launched me. It was pretty incredible. I skipped to a couple of places and then landed at an incredible job and at a young age, by the time I was like 19-ish, I was making more money than I thought I ever could at that age. I was traveling all over the United States. I landed on an incredible line. In fact, I got so lucky. 
I, and I'll, I will say it was luck. I landed on this line. This girl was sick one day and they, I worked for one of the biggest, at that time, one of the biggest reps in the industry and a rep in fashion is someone who carries like this rep had over 30 different lines, maybe in his place. And I went to interview there. And again, at the time I hardly had any clothes. Uh, the woman who interviewed me said, you know, why should I hire you? I said, look, I said, I know I don't really have a lot of experience in sales, but I know sales and I know I'll be one of your best people here that you'll ever have. And she's like, you know what? You remind me of my niece. And, and that woman's name turned out to be Barbara Tomei and her niece was Marissa Tomei, the actress. Yeah. So she hired me and, um, Boy, did I learned sales and I was put on a line. This girl was out sick, was the hottest line maybe in the industry at the time in women's dresses. I had decided to, I wanted to show them what I could do. So I grabbed a stock list. I asked the factory, I called up the factory, said, could you send me a stock list? And then I started calling all of their customers and selling stuff to them that they never had over the phone. I mean, back then there were no computers, right? You had fax machines and a phone. So uh, I had a manual stock list I'm looking at. And I kept faxing orders in all day. And the owner of that company said, who's this girl? Who, where are all these orders coming from? And I said, oh, she's just subbing for this other girl who's out sick. They're like, well, you're going to fire the other girl. We want her. That was my big break in fashion when I went on that line. Well, so it was really sales that you were in love with. Could you have done that sales in another industry, do you think? I do. I think if you're in, if you like sales and I didn't have a special affinity for clothing, I was just good at picking things out and putting them together, but um, I had a good eye, but I didn't grow up like, oh, I have to have this outfit. I loved just wearing jeans and a t-shirt. It didn't matter to me. Right. Right. So you loved that, uh, that job in sales. You were making quite a bit of money that time and you, you loved the New York scene, but you loved the traveling as well. Did you enjoy that part of it? At that time I did. I mean, I was given carte blanche. I was given, I was so young, I was given a charge card, go get the most expensive dinners. And we stayed at the best places and we traveled all, you know, across the country. And, or when I was in the showroom in New York city, they would take the buyers to the best places. So it opened up a whole nother world for me. That was, I mean, that was definitely a good perk to the job. Very exciting. I took buyers to see Broadway shows. I entertained people. I went out in limousines all the time. I mean, it was, I'd go to stores and not even look at a price tag. And then, of course, I was also helping my mom at the time because she was really struggling. And I was very much like a role reversal. I pretty much took care of her for a while. I see. So you could go out to a really nice restaurant with a buyer without having to wait for a bag of change to drop out of the 21st story. Right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Times were very, very different. And then at an early age, when that was when I, when I was like in my early 20s, I had met my first husband, got married and had kids early. And yeah, just life just unfolded in front of me. And you thought, this is it. This is what I want to do. That's This is what I was made for. At the time, again, I didn't really love, I just, I love the money and I love the freedom that it afforded me. And I found it to, I was good at it, but again, I didn't have a special affinity for it. If I had my druthers, I, like I said, I always wanted to become an attorney and go to law school. I was just good in sales and I just, it was easy. It was easy to make money. So how many years were you in fashion sales? So I'm going to say like forever, basically, <laughs> I 
spent 20 years at one company. I launched a division for a company of women's evening dresses. And I launched it, it was from zero to a $60 million division. And I was responsible personally for doing probably $30 million worth of sales myself a year. Mm. And I had assistants and salespeople under me and I grew it from scratch. And as the business grew and the pressure grew, and I don't know if you remember all the mergers that took place with uh, Macy's took over all of federated stores and all the stores that you used to love turned into Macy's. Do you remember that? Right. Um, So that put a lot of people out of business and it did just the opposite for me. It skyrocketed me because my brand was kept within Macy's. So again, it was, it was luck. I'm going to say it was definitely luck at the time, but we managed to build an incredible business and I was quite successful at it. So you probably figured this is going to be, at least for the foreseeable future, something that you were going to be doing and enjoying and thriving at. Yeah, I I was doing it, but I also had guilty working mother syndrome because at the same time I had little kids. I never missed a day of work. I actually cut a deal with them. I worked Monday through Thursday and I was home Friday, Saturday and Sunday. So I didn't go into work on a Friday. And that gave me a glimpse into my children's everyday life. I would get up early and cook them breakfast and take them to school and take them to their doctor appointments and meet their friends. I lived for my children. Everything for me was about my children. So it was definitely, I felt guilty and I was saddened because I, you know, I left them with my mother-in-law to watch them or sitters, but on the same hand, it made them pretty strong too. They're very independent. It made them not depend on anybody, actually. They're two very strong women, my girls. And of course, back in those days, at least the four days you were going into the office, you didn't have the flexibility of working from home or the traveling. You couldn't do Zoom calls or something like that. So those four days you were committed to work. Yeah, very much so. And it was good that cell phones didn't exist because when you didn't work, you didn't work, right? It was oh, awesome. that's true. I forgot about those right? days. So that's the good part of that. The bad part was, yeah, I didn't have the technology to FaceTime or anything like that. If I had to travel, I cried. I missed my kids a lot. It was very, very tough on me. Oh, I bet it was. So Lisa, you had a major shift in your life as far as what you did for a living and your personal life was impacted as well. And could you tell us how you went from the fashion industry to Silver Sands Recovery? Sure. So I have goosebumps thinking about this because Mm -hmm. it was quite a story. I noticed that my daughter at the age of 16 wasn't acting right. And I discovered she was doing drugs. That was my older daughter. And it led me down, led us all down a path of a very dark hole. And the best years of my life professionally were the worst years of my life personally. From the age of 16 to 21, I just was desperate to get my daughter better. I had no idea what I was dealing with when I first saw it. I was in denial. I was an enabler. I did all the wrong things. I felt like the world's worst mother on earth. I I couldn't understand. I couldn't wrap my head around what was going on. And I was losing my kid. It took years. It took five long, horrible years of sleepless nights, of sleeping with a phone under my pillow, of absolute absolute torture, really, not knowing whether my kid was alive or not at times. And then how do you force somebody to get help? That's another story. As a parent, 
as a loved one, you want somebody to get better and they have to want it too. It was a very dark part of my life. And at the end of the day, we got through it and we came out to Arizona. That was a game changer for us. Now it's, we're going on six years. My daughter's in recovery, doing great. It changed all of our lives moving out here. So I worked in the fashion industry, but like I said, it was great. The money was great and all of that. But I didn't feel fulfilled as a person doing it either. I did it for the money and I was good at it, but I, I didn't feel like it was ever my calling. When I saw my daughter get better, I knew right then and there that I had to get into this business because I knew that there was a good way to do this. I knew there was hope for people out there. And I, and coming from somebody who had felt at times me and my daughter felt it was hopeless to have hope again and to know that it can be done and you can help people, but they just have to be given the right chance. That was it for me. I, I was committed to, I worked on a business plan and I traveled to other rehabs. I met other owners who were so gracious to let me into their facilities and show me how to run a business. So I made some good friends along the way. I wrote letters to people. I left no stone unturned because I was really determined to do this. But again, what do I know about running and owning a drug rehab, right? I I don't know anything about it. So I really dug deep and I learned as much as I could. And then I partnered up with one of the very people out there that helped save my daughter, my partner today, Brian McEnroe. He didn't give up on my kid when she came out here. She was pretty tough. She was no angel. I mean, look, we're from New York, so we're pretty bad to begin with, right? New York, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, people like Jersey's in the house. We could be kind of scary people. And then it's very easy to lose patience with somebody, but he just made her feel safe and he had a lot of patience with her and where other people probably would have kicked her out of their rehab. He gave her a lot of second chances and it's, I really attribute one of the reasons she's here today is because of him. And of course, because of all of her hard work, she did it. Lisa, let me ask you if you wouldn't mind to back up a little bit. What were some of the signs that you first saw in your daughter that made you realize something may be really wrong? She couldn't get out of bed in the morning. That was bad. Like, why couldn't you get, you can't get out of bed. She was starting to stay up late. Her grades were slipping. She was no longer, you know, nice. She had an edge to her and I didn't understand what it was. She kept asking for money. You know, can I do this for money? Can I clean up? Can I do? So she kept asking for money. I was giving it to her. Mm-hmm. I didn't know between the failing grades, the money drain, the change in attitude and the lovingness that she used to display. It just wasn't there. My kid was changing. Are those pretty much common signs to look for? Definitely. If anybody out there is listening, they recognize all of that and more. Do they ever experience, or or as a parent, do you sense that their friends are changing or they're not seeing their friends as much? Yeah. I mean, all of that, the friends change, you know, the kids that used to be, you know, the good kids kind of fall out of the picture and it's replaced by more, more of the wilder kids. The kids that you don't like, put it that way, <laughs> that you don't want to see around your kid. And your kid is one of them at one point. And you can't blame them either. I mean, it's, it's just, it was just bad all around. Now, 
when did you start to notice that she was really turning the corner for recovery? Well, when she was here, I'm going to say when I came out here to visit her it was about a month or so after she arrived here and she was still here. So that gave me hope. It wasn't like all the other programs she went to that were in Florida were only 30 day programs. There just was never enough time. She would come home and relapse instantly. So getting her out here into a program where she had a chance to get her brain back and be here for enough time really helped her. So um, the fact that she was still here after 30 days gave me an inkling of hope. But to be quite honest with you, I'm going to say it was probably a year after she was here, a year of being sober. We had spent the weekend in a hotel in Scottsdale, and I saw her laugh like she used to. I didn't know that was missing from the equation. You know, I was just glad my kid was alive and she wasn't doing drugs. But she was definitely on, you know, some other medications maybe and stuff like that that she eventually got off of. She didn't need anymore. But she didn't seem like the same to me. But that weekend, I'll never forget when she left and she was on her way back to Prescott, I started crying uncontrollably. And I'm not a crier at all. I never cry. Like, I never cry. And I just, it was like almost guttural. I didn't realize I've been, I was holding my breath that long to see if she was okay. And at that moment, I saw she was. And I called her up crying. And she goes, why, mama, why are you crying? And I'm like, well, you know, you're normal. You're yourself. You're normal again. You understand you're normal again. Do you see that? And she started crying too. And uh, that's when I, that was the day I actually really committed to doing Silver Sands. What an important moment for you, for your daughter, but also for all the people who have since been helped by Silver Sands Recovery. Yeah, I just, I was talking to uh, my director of operations today. She was the first person I hired. Uh, we got licensed and I hired her over the phone. <laughs> I was in New Jersey at the time and I got on a plane the next day and flew back to Arizona. We were just discussing how many people must have come through our doors since the beginning. We actually have the, the list. It's good. We helped a lot of people along the way, for sure. One of the things I like about my program and that I'll always say is that I can't promise you'll get sober and stay sober. Nobody can do that. But I, I do promise that it will give you a good chance to get yourself back. Lisa, what are some of the most, or what were some of the most challenging aspects of starting up Silver Sands? And what are some of the most rewarding parts of that journey? Well, the challenge was, I didn't know anything about owning a drug rehab. So I really, I stepped in as CEO of a company and I do have two partners. One is in charge of the policies and procedures, the licensure and the accreditations that we need to function as a top-notch facility. And the other partner had experience in the day-to-day runnings of a rehab. And what I brought to the table was business. I ran a business, a very huge business prior to this in fashion and uh, marketing. Between the three of us, we were really able to hit the ground running. You know, the challenge for me was here, I I came from New York City and I came to like this little tiny town of 20,000 people. (laughs) So, So it was definitely a change for me, but it was an endearing change. It was, I felt like I left the rat race and I was with the real people and the people here in Prescott are the best people on earth that I've ever met. 
I'm very grateful to be here with them. So you're really happy to be in Arizona. I thank God every day. First thing I thank God for is the health of my, my family and my children. And then I'm able to see my kids every day. That was the one thing, I, like I said, from the beginning of the show, I missed my kids working. I get to see them every day now, whenever I want. That's pretty amazing to me. That, that's worth everything right there and then. And then the other thing is, I feel like my life has a really good purpose and meaning. Like if we're able to help one person, that one person, I didn't even realize at the time, but you see the ripple effect of their whole family getting the benefit of somebody in recovery and everybody's life has a chance to gain happiness and a quality of life that they haven't had for a long time. That to me is one of the greatest joys. And every so often we'll get a card or email thanking us for our staff. And this is where we are today. And my kids in school and our families together and our life is great and the infinite possibilities we reached. And we get cards all the time like that and nothing is greater, you know? I really thank God for your Silver Sands recovery. What amazing work you're doing in restored lives. While you're meeting families and people coming in and having discussions with families, what do you find is the biggest mistake that most families make when they're dealing with an addict in the family, a loved one who's an addict? Well, you know, there's so many mistakes families make. And I know because I made all of them and, and I was the worst offender. So I can see that I was an enabler. Giving your kids money. And by the way, your kid could be 40 years old, by the way. <laughs> we deal with all ages. You're 18 right. To, right. to like 75, you know. Um, you'd be surprised. But giving your loved one, you know, supporting them financially is something you want to do because you don't want to see, you know, if they lose their job, you don't want them to be homeless and all of that. But really that perpetuates the disease. Unfortunately, people need an incentive to change until they feel that incentive, which is maybe they don't have a car to drive anymore. Maybe they got a DUI. Maybe their family will no longer talk to them and they won't help support them financially. Those are all good reasons to want to change. But if you're going to help them financially and still pay for their car and do those things, then it makes it a, a lot tougher to get somebody into treatment. And then the other thing is, is that everybody wants to believe your kid. And I get it. I, I was one of them. I mean, I believed everything my kid told me. I never wanted to believe anything otherwise. The reality is that while you're in the throes of addiction, that person's best thinking got them where they are right now. So you really can't ask them what they think anymore. You have to do the thinking for them and approach it like you would if you were the principal in a school. In other words, would you graduate somebody? Would you give them A's? Would you, you know, would you, would you pass them if they were failing? No. So, so it's very hard to take your heart out of it. But I can tell you firsthand when I said to myself, I need to look at this like I would a business right now. And I have to stop giving my kid money. I'm killing her. That's when things started to actually get better for her and get her into treatment. I've heard some of those stories. I've watched the program Intervention. I don't know if you've watched that. You want to hear something funny? That's yeah. what got us out to Arizona. My daughter watched the show Intervention and saw a rehab in Arizona. And that's why we were here today. Really? Yeah. 
That that is a very a very well done show, and we've watched it for a long time. And I know my middle daughter is a licensed professional counselor, and I know when she was younger, she used to watch that, and she was very intrigued by the interventionists and how that worked. But I know that one of the big struggles that you see on that show, and I would imagine you do as well, are enablers, because the parents are desperately afraid that if they don't at least keep them in the fold by giving them money, that they're going to go out on the streets and die alone somewhere, and they're going to feel like they're at fault. Yeah, I was there. I mean, I felt that pain and more. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a very fine line. There are times when I sent my kid food. I would call it the local pizza place. There were times when I drove up to see her and find her and bring her to a hotel and get her food. And I never like to tell a parent what to do, basically. But I do tell them, if it was me, this is what I did. And you need to find your own boundaries, what you could live with. It would be good if everybody in your family was on the same page. If there's any chinks in the armor, they'll go after that. Whoever is the weak link to give in, they'll go after that. So you all have to stay strong, all stay on the same page, be very firm, but also very loving. Hopefully that'll bring them into uh, recovery. You know, and recovery, by the way, is not just drug addiction. It is mental health. We do, we are dual diagnosis. We are very much mental health. And we've seen recently a big spike in depression because of COVID. And we've had people that have come into our facility, not for addiction, although they might've had that in the past, they've been compliant and they haven't relapsed, but they've suffered severe depression right now. People that have lived by the program, 12 Steps AA and NA, it's about being there for other people and going to meetings. And there's a social element to it that has been destroyed for uh, almost a year now. And We've seen a huge relapse rate. These people are really struggling out there right now. It's, it's very, very serious. I know I'm uh, involved with a church. I'm an associate pastor at a church. And, you know, you just hear so many stories of people really suffering from feeling alone or disconnected from loved ones. And people are, are really hurting in so many ways because they don't have the normal outlets or connections with community that they once had. So I guess you see the impact of this COVID in many ways. And I would imagine, as you say, that your services and the heart of your organization is is there waiting for these people to help. It's just such a blessing that you have started and that you run this amazing organization, Lisa. Thank you. I mean, and, you know, I really do attribute it to, you got to have heart when you do this and you got to care. For me, it's not just a business. I care about each and every person that walks through those doors. And so does my staff. I have the greatest staff on earth. I mean, I, I love all of them. When someone walks through our doors. One of the things is that we all treat them as if they were our family. They're not just a number. They have feelings and we all have compassion. Our medical director treats them with incredible compassion. Addiction is a disease and it needs to be treated with the same seriousness that you would diabetes or cancer. Family needs to be educated on it, not just the enabling part, but there's a lot of education that is involved in the process when someone goes through treatment with us. Um, we might recommend books. We'll work with families if it's appropriate with their loved one in treatment. 
to get everybody on the same page. And when that happens, they tend to do extremely well. But again, at the end of the day, it is a business that you have to have heart in it. You really do. Thank you for that. Lisa, if you could give one piece of advice to a family struggling with addiction of any kind, what would that be? Never give up. Never give up. You got to keep trying because you love that person and they might not be trying for them. But, you know, at one point you just leave no stone unturned and do everything you can to get them into a program and keep at it. And there is hope. Again, you just have to just don't ever give up. Just keep trying. And it doesn't matter if the addict or the person suffering gets angry at you. No, you hold your boundaries. You know, I, at one point I felt hopeless and I was actually just inconsolable. I felt unbelievable. I felt like I was just losing the battle and I had to just suck it all in. And I just looked at myself in the mirror one day and I said, I am going to do whatever it takes, whatever it takes, no matter where I am. If she is willing to go and get treatment, I will drop anything and go anywhere to make it happen. And I, I did, I would be in the middle of a meeting with the president of Bloomingdale's and see a text and say, excuse me, my assistant will follow up. I'll be with you another time. And I would literally leave there, jump in a cab, jump on a plane, get in a car, whatever it took. Like I just, and it took every, honestly, it took everything out of me. You know, I just, was losing my kid. And I I think there's a lot of parents out there that feel the same way and have done the same thing. I've seen them firsthand. There are amazing people out there that remind me very much of myself when they walk through the doors. They did it. They got their kid into treatment. You know, there's always hope and educate yourself. Just do everything you can to get your loved one into treatment because they do need that. Once you go into that deep, dark hole, it's very difficult for these guys to get out of it it is almost impossible to do alone. They need professional help. So whatever you can do to help them get in, get professional care, that's what I would do. Thank you, Lisa. Those are clearly words from experience. Lisa, I'd like to ask you, what would you like your legacy to be? Well, um, I guess my legacy to the world would be to have a continued Silver Sands recovery and have it go on for however long you can, with or without me, just continue and to help as many people out there as possible to know that at Silver Sands Recovery, our logo is S Heart S. And um, I designed that myself, which means help with heart. Okay. So I would like to see our legacy help with heart continue. Thank you. Lisa, is there some contact information for Silver Sands Recovery that you could give our listeners in case they know of somebody who needs help with with addiction and recovery and things like that? Yeah. um, If you or a loved one is suffering from any addiction or underlying issues and need a program that could address dual diagnosis as well, we offer a 30, 60, and 90-day program and sometimes even longer. In order to contact us, you could just simply call 888-845-9484 or look up silversandsrecovery.com and go on our website. You'll find us. You'll see me too. So there you go. (laughs) Lisa, I have one 
Really important question to ask you, though, since you've moved out to Arizona from the New York metropolitan area. Have you found pizza that's anywhere near as good as it is in New York? Okay, well, uh, I will say, uh, lucky us, there's a place called Rose's Pizza Italian Restaurant in Prescott, and the owners were from Jersey. So, bada bing, there you go. Bada bing. (laughs) (laughs) We we have good pizza in the house. (laughs) I've heard some nightmare stories about non-New York, New Jersey pizza, but I'm glad to hear that some of our New Jersey brethren are out there spreading the good cheese. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. I, we, I do miss the bagels, though, I will say. I get it shipped to me sometimes. <laughs> if you want any Taylor ham, too, we could probably arrange <laughs> to have some out here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I definitely miss the food, you know, but uh, it's, it's okay. I'll gladly give it up for this place. It's honestly, it's heaven here. I, I couldn't be happier. Well, we wish you the very best in all that you do and for positively impacting so many lives. Uh, Again, I want to thank you on behalf of our podcast and from my family. Thank you very much for having me. So, for all of our listeners, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.